This is the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Hurley. Independent news commentary with a California perspective, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 13, Episode 12, The Ukrainian War, Week 4, Russia's Strategic Mistakes, and What Role for NATO. In conversation with retired British General Sir Chris Deverell. Our guest today is Sir Chris Deverell, a graduate of Oxford University. He served in the British Army for 40 years, from 1979 to 2019. His career culminated with his service as one of the UK's Chiefs of Staff in Joint Forces Command, which is now called Strategic Command, from 2016 to 2019. For my American listeners, Britain's Strategic Command is similar to Joint Forces Command, which ceased to exist in 2011. Throughout his career, he served in a variety of commands, including the 4th Armored Brigade, as well as the Joint Chemical, Biological, Radiation, and Nuclear Regiment. Cybersecurity continues to be an ongoing professional commitment for him. He also saw service in Northern Ireland, Germany, and Iraq. Sir Chris joins us today from his home in Bath, the west of England. Good morning, Chris, and welcome to the show. Hi, Jim. It's nice to be with you. Chris, Vladimir Lenin, the Bolshevik founder of the Soviet Union, famously said, and I quote, there are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen, unquote. Do you think that the last four weeks is a decade worth of history? And that's number one. And secondly, do you think that the other Vladimir, Putin that is, realized that he was creating a watershed moment in history with his invasion of the Ukraine? Well, I think, Jim, that the, the, there is no doubt that this is a profoundly significant moment in, in our histories. I think myself the most dangerous for, for 50 years and potentially the most significant since the end of the Second World War. So uh, in that sense, I, you know, I do believe that a lot has changed in the last four weeks. Of course, there have been, historically, that there have been invasions of countries by Russia in, you know, in 1956, a, a number of Warsaw Pact countries resisted the Hungarian Revolution, and the, the, there was also an invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Mm-hmm. But in both cases, those were those were countries that were essentially already the other side of the Iron Curtain, trying to throw off that Soviet dominance. But this is very different because it, we're talking about a free democratic country now being invaded by a hostile power. So I think it is a watershed. Whether or not Vladimir Putin expected it to be this way, I doubt. You know, I think the evidence is he thought it would be all over much quicker and that I I assume he thought that the West would weep and moan a bit, but that because it would all happen quickly without a lot of bloodshed, you know, that that eventually we would get beyond it and some kind of normal relations would then be re-established. Whereas it's quite impossible to see how how normal relations can now be re-established with Russia 
with Vladimir Putin in charge. Who knows what was in his mind? I know the CIA, and I'm sure British intelligence is also trying to do profiles, of psychological profiles of, of Vladimir Putin. But when we think of his move into the Ukraine, the Russian military establishment was so much bigger on paper, so much more powerful than that of the Ukraine. What happened? Can we start to dissect some of Russia's biggest blunders? And if any, were there any, have there been any successes at this point? Well, let me deal with the latter first. I mean, it's hard to see what's gone well for them. They ha- I don't think they've achieved to date any of their immediate objectives. So I think you'd have to put this down as a, a serious failure so far. I think that the reasons for that are multiple. The, the, the first thing, and I, these are in no particular order, but they, they amount to quite a big set of problems for Vladimir Putin, I think. The first thing is that I don't think the Russian armed forces have actually practiced well in joint operations, in coordinating events on land, sea and air. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that is a very complex thing to do. And Western militaries spend a lot of time and effort trying to ensure that it's done right. And we don't always get it right. I just don't think they had given enough attention to that to that, those joint operations. And as a result, they fought separate campaigns without one service or one domain supporting another. I think the Russian military as a general proposition is much less well configured for expeditionary operations, i.e. operations outside the Russian homeland, than than we are now in the West. We're used to fighting overseas. I don't believe the Russian army in particular was structured to conduct operations away from their logistic bases. For example, the, the Russian army depends a lot more on rail transport for its logistics than we do. And of course, rail is not available to the Russians in Ukraine, or if it, if it is, it's been blown up. And it's any, in any case a different gauge from the rail gauge in, in Russia. So it would require them to cross-load all that ammunition, for example, from, from the Russian rail gauge to the Ukrainian rail gauge. So that they, they didn't have enough trucks. So logistics has been a really big problem for them. They don't have enough trucks, and they are not well-practiced in, in joint operations. I think they also, as it transpired, did not sufficiently prepare their people, their soldiers, for what they were about to do. I think a lot of them went on exercise to Belarusia and Western Russia, didn't realize that, that they were destined to invade Ukraine and weren't ready to do so emotionally. And so I suspect they've had really significant problems of morale amongst the Russian troops, for whom a lot these Ukrainians are not some strange foreigners. A lot of them are, are brothers and cousins. And then I think, as a general proposition, the junior leadership in the, in the Russian armed forces is not what we'd expect to see in the West. And so when times get tough and when things get difficult, it, the junior leadership doesn't step up to the plate and make sure that the right things happen. That's why I think you've seen a lot of senior leaders, Russian senior military leaders being killed, because they've had to go forward because the more junior leadership hasn't done its job properly. So a lot of issues. I think there's one other that I can think of. As a general proposition, they tend to think about axes of advance on single roads. That's all very well if you if you make progress down those roads. But if you don't need to maneuver, if you do need to maneuver, 
it's very difficult to do so if you're not practiced at it. And it's difficult in particular in Ukraine at this time of year because of the mud. So it all amounts to a really big problem, I think, for, for Putin now, which I don't see fundamentally changing. He may be able to bring in more manpower to, to a degree, and including some foreign fighters. Yes. But these will not be first echelon troops, and, and it will take them time to assimilate. So I think they are unlikely to make really significant gains now on the battlefield, except through breaking the will of the Ukrainian people by bombarding them. Now, again, when you look on paper, you compare Russia's military budget with that of Ukraine. Uh, some uh, some numbers I have here that I got from the BBC, it shows that Russia's annual defense budget is $60 billion. Ukraine's annual budget was $4 billion. Of course, the Russian army under active duty was about 900,000. Ukrainian army was about 200,000 under active duty. That doesn't include reserves. So, I mean, on paper, and of course, aircraft, the Russians far outnumbered the Ukrainians. Attack helicopters, the Russians far outnumbered the Ukrainians. How come the Russians haven't been able to establish command of the skies? And of course, we have President Walensky of Ukraine, who has been begging the West, NATO, and the United States to create a no-fly zone. How come that one huge strategic advantage that Russia had in terms of uh, overwhelming number of attack aircraft and attack helicopters, how come they haven't been able to press that advantage forward to get command of the skies and therefore give cover to their troops to go in? Well, it's a good question. It surprised a lot of Western commentators. I think... The, the answer lies in a range of factors again. The first is they never managed to suppress Ukrainian air defense systems. So they are unable to uh, operate with impunity because of the inability to, to suppress those anti-air missile systems that the Ukrainians have. The second thing I think is that they have much less practice in these kind of operations than you'd think. The, the average number of flying hours flown by a Russian pilot, I think, is about half that that we would expect uh, mm. for a Western pilot. So they're, they're not as well drilled as, as you might expect. I think another reason for the for the problem is lack of precision-guided munitions. They, they haven't had enough stocks of those kinds of weapon systems to use to attack, for example, the Ukrainian air defense. So, And also, I think you don't, can't underestimate the bravery and determination and commitment of the Ukrainian air force and, and air defenders. Mm -hmm. So all of that amounts to a position in which, yes, even now today, they do not have, the Russians do not have control of the skies. That's amazing. Four weeks into this campaign and the Russians still don't have command of the skies. And of course, they weren't able to take out, as you said, they weren't able to take out the Ukrainian air defense systems. And in addition to which, they have been getting enormous support from the West, Sidewinder missiles, which have been used to great effect against the attack helicopters, tow missiles, which have been used to great effect against the armored personnel carriers and tanks. And then, of course, it comes down to morale. If you have a highly motivated army, such as the Ukrainians who are willing to lay down their lives to protect their country versus low morale conscripts who are 18, 19 years old. Uh, we saw pictures of these young conscripts who'd been taken prisoner, uh, prisoner of war, I guess, by the Ukrainians on TV, and they were crying. 
They were, I mean, these are young boys. They're 18, 19-year-old conscripts saying that they didn't sign up for this. They didn't know that they were going to fight a war in Ukraine. So the difference in morale just seems to be enormous. Is there any parallel, Chris, in your 40-some years in, in the military, in the British Army, is there is there any parallel in campaigns where you fought where there was a huge dichotomy of morale between your forces and the enemy's forces? Not really that I can think of. I mean, it, it is very striking. I think there's another factor which we should also discuss, which is the Ukrainians are on the defensive. And as a general proposition, it's, it takes more resources if you're on the offense than if you're on the defense. So that it's, it's been easier for them. They haven't had to maneuver. They have been able to hunker down, prepare defenses, and then fight from behind those defenses which makes it easier for them. And as you say, they've been strongly reinforced with weaponry from the West. But as to your, as to your question about morale, no, this is, this is pretty outside my experience. I've not seen anything quite so bad as it appears the Russian military morale is today. The, the Russian army famously was said to have numbered 190,000 out of a total of, total of 900,000 in the Russian army on active service. So it looks as though they've they've committed almost 25% of their active service units to the Ukrainian campaign. Losses seem to be high. I mean, we hear about casualties on the Russian side ranging from 7,000 Russian soldiers dead to up to 14,000 Russian soldiers dead. As you said earlier, five generals dead in the space of four weeks. Can Russia continue to sustain those kind of losses, number one? And number two, out of their total of 900,000 of active service personnel, and they've deployed 190,000 to Ukraine, will they have to start drawing down some of those, some of the remaining 700,000 that are in other parts of the, uh, the, the Russian continent? Yes, I'm sure they will be trying to flow in fresh forces into the Ukrainian theater, but it won't be easy for them to do that. Firstly, they have to get them there. And ideally, they have to get them there with their equipment because they're not necessarily able to take over equipment from initial wave of attackers because a lot of that equipment has been lost or destroyed. So so there's the issue of getting them there. There's also the issue that they will not, he will have generally speaking, pushed his best troops into this first attack and there won't be a, a huge a lot of quality a huge amount of quality i think left that he hasn't used and he'll also be slightly concerned about leaving himself exposed in other parts of the country so so there is a real limit to how much he can add additional russian russian troops into the into the fight which is why you've seen him asking syrians and chechens and people like this if they want to join in the fight because he hasn't got enough russians do you think those foreign forces, the Syrians, the Chechens, or other foreign fighters, I know that that foreign mercenary group called the Wagner Group, which the Russians have used to some effect in Africa, that they are now deployed or being deployed in uh, Ukraine. How, how many, what sort of numbers are we talking about with these foreign fighters? And do you think that that could be a, that could be a tipping factor or is it more a propaganda stroke? I, I don't really see it as a propaganda stroke but i don't see it as a tipping factor either i would imagine that out of 
foreign fighters, he's not going to get more than low tens of thousands of people, if that. Mm-hmm. And, and as I say, it's difficult to see what he'd equip them with anyway. So I don't see them as making that much difference. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't see how they would uh, PR win for him either. It doesn't exactly, it's not exactly a good look to, to have Chechen thugs deployed in, in Ukraine, mm-hmm. I wouldn't have thought, or Syrians for that matter. Now, let's go back to NATO. In the past week, we've seen the Russians begin to shell Lviv in western Ukraine, which is only 40 kilometers from the Polish border. They hit the Lviv airport. They hit an army base close to Lviv. Up till this point, western Ukraine had been had, had not been attacked by the Russians. So the Russians are now beginning their attack on the western reaches of Ukraine. And of course, when you're when you're a matter of 10, 20, 30 miles from, from the border with Poland, Poland, of course, is a member of NATO. President Biden will be visiting Warsaw, the capital, this coming Thursday, Friday. Of course, NATO and President Biden have said that they don't want to get involved with troops on the ground. But to the extent that the Russians are bringing the war to the doorstep of Poland, what are your thoughts about that, Chris? And how do you think NATO would react if there is a Russian incursion into a NATO member like Poland? So I think NATO is determined to draw a line around the geography of NATO and say, if you stay the other side of that line, Vladimir Putin, we're going to support the Ukrainians with as much arms and ammunition as we can get to them, but we're not going to attack you ourselves. We will stay out of the the conflict militarily. However, NATO has also said repeatedly that if Vladimir Putin attacks a NATO country, that the West will defend it with all its power. I would imagine that if there is some Russian military incursion or attack into the soil of a NATO country, that there will be a military response from NATO. As to precisely what that would look like, I think NATO would be trying hard not to escalate it out of control. So I doubt that we're suddenly into a major war between NATO and Russia if a few bombs land in Poland. But but I doubt that, the, that NATO could avoid any response at all. I think there would have to be some form of military response. At the same time, again, as the as the Russians are moving toward western Ukraine and approaching the border with Poland and with NATO, are diplomatic links still in effect? Is, is NATO, the EU, Britain, the U.S., are, are they continuing to talk with their counterparts in Russia, or have they ha, has all communication ceased at this point? No, I would doubt that communication has ceased, although I would imagine it is not what it was. I, there are hotlines that exist between, for example, the UK MOD and the Russian MOD, and likewise with, with the Pentagon. So there will be conversations taking place. I, wh- whether or not they make a difference is a, is a different matter. But I don't believe it's the case that it all, it's all public diplomacy now. I'm sure that there are private conversations going on. Let's come back to, to China. Before the invasion, Russia and China signed a pact of support. Of course, historically, they have not been been very friendly. Historically, they have had wars. They've had border skirmishes over the years, etc. At this point, China and Russia have signed this pact. And President Biden spent two hours on the telephone with President Xi Jinping last Friday 
outlining to him what the position of NATO in the West is vis-a-vis Russia, and number two, also warning China that in the event of China skirting the sanctions against Russia, that there would be severe consequences to pay. Now, to the extent that Russia is running low on munitions, that they're running low on manpower, what is what are your thoughts about China helping Russia with uh, Xi Jinping said that their relationship is rock solid. What are your thoughts about China supplying munitions to to Russia? And it appears that Russia is is in need of them. Well, I think I'm going to answer that in a roundabout way, if you'll, if you'll allow me. Of course. I, mean, I, I start w- with thinking about Putin's will to, to continue this fight. And, and I think that that will will have taken a, a battering as a result of, of the unexpectedly strong Ukrainian resistance, unexpectedly strong sanctions from the West, and unexpectedly weak performance by his own armed forces. So all, all of those beliefs will have been challenged in the last four weeks. But he, I am sure, is still being sustained by four other beliefs. One is that he can control his people. Mm-hmm. The, the second, I think, is that he can maintain some revenue from oil and gas, even if it's through China. The third is that China will help in some substantial way. And the fourth is that the West will not take direct military action against him. Now, I think if you could start to make those beliefs crumble like his earlier beliefs, then his will would suffer for sure. So I think the position of China, to answer your question directly, is really quite important. China has got enough resource, if it wants to, to be very helpful to the Russian cause, to Putin's cause. But to do so, it would have to flout the sanctions and it will really be unwilling to do that, at least very publicly. I suspect that China will try to do things in support of of Putin quite quietly, and it may have already done so. But throwing in their lot very publicly with Putin and essentially coming in behind him with money and weaponry I think is a very big call for the Chinese. And I, I personally don't think that's what they're going to do. But it's not impossible. In the last 24, 48 hours, the Russians gave the Ukrainians a surrender ultimatum, I think in the city of Mariupol, that if they were to demanding that they surrender and in return, the Russians would open humanitarian corridors. Of course, that was dismissed by Walensky. Where do we... Where do we stand at this point in terms of those ceasefire negotiations between the two sides? Is that is that simply window dressing on the part uh, on the part of the Russians? It, it appears that obviously Walensky is is appears to be willing to to have those negotiations, but he's obviously rejected this this uh, surrender demand. What do you think the future is for those uh, ceasefire negotiations that seem to that were taking place first in Belarus, and then we saw Lavrov, the Soviet, uh, the Russian rather, the Russian foreign minister, negotiating with his counter his Ukrainian counterpart in Turkey the week before last. Any hope for those those ceasefire negotiations yielding some results in the short term? Well, before I answer that, let me just talk about Mariupol, because I think that is quite important. We understand, see that as it is. If the Russians were to behave as implied by the ultimatum, they would be committing a war crime. You you cannot say 
that anyone in a city is a fair target if there are still civilians in that city. Uh, a civilian is a civilian is a civilian. <laughs> mm-hmm. you, you can't change them by saying they're suddenly, you know, I'm suddenly making you into a combatant just because of where you physically are. So that is an illegal order and has rightly been rejected by the Ukrainians. As to the issue of peace talks more generally, I think that if you look at the range of possible outcomes here, some kind of peace is uh, is possible. It's not inconceivable. There, and there are two variants of that. One is an unhappy peace for the Ukrainians in which continuing, continued bombardment of their cities breaks their determination to fight and, and they effectively sue for peace. Ukraine would then be effectively neutralized as far as Putin is concerned. And then the biggest issue would come what would happen to sanctions. And I'll come back to that in a second. The other version of a peace is one in which Putin concludes that the military situation is not going to get any better for him than it is now. And he accepts peace on terms that are acceptable to Ukraine. You know, I, th- I think that's very unlikely because it would be an existential failure for Putin. Mm-hmm. You know, in that scenario, he would have to find sanctuary outside Russia or die, I think. So I think peace is possible. But, and the most likely version of peace is one in which the Ukrainians essentially can't cope with the bombing anymore and, and accept some kind of Russian, Russian-inspired peace. But I don't think that that is as likely as a lengthy stalemate. You know, I think the much more likely situation we have is that the Russian forces are unable to make significant military progress, but they're also unwilling to escalate sufficiently to cause Ukrainians to have to accept peace on Russia's terms. And, and equally, Ukraine has the ability to stop substantial Russian advantages, advances, but, but insufficient power to push them back out of the country. Both, both sides can sustain themselves in the field, but cannot generate sufficient combat power to defeat the other. Mm-hmm. And that, that scenario could persist for months, even years. Coming back to Russian politics, are there any rumblings of dissatisfaction with Putin, both in terms of his inner governing body and more broadly in the street? Are the Russian people still behind him? And is there a potential for him to be overthrown? Well, I don't think we would see evidence of a of a coup taking place until after it had happened. You know, for the, for the security of the coup plotters, they, they would have to have it so. So, so if there is going to be some kind of coup by people on the inside, people around Putin, the first time we'll hear about it is when we wake about it and read it in the newspapers. I think that there will be increasing disquiet amongst the Russian people more generally, but I doubt that that is sufficient to overturn Putin. His regime is going to end up, Russia is going to end up significantly weaker as a result of this war, really, whatever happens, because of economic sanctions, diplomatic isolation, you know, his armed forces will have been severely damaged, probably will have an ongoing insurgency in Ukraine, even if he can impose peace. There will be a brain drain of thousands of Russian professionals who want no part in his world. And they're they're going to have to depend on China to some significant degree to get through this. So Russia is going to be significantly weaker. But the irony is that Putin's personal position may even, in, especially in the short term, be strengthened. Hmm. Because what he's going to do is use more and more repression to ensure that he's not overthrown. Well, Chris, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, do you have any thoughts about 
President Biden's trip to Brussels and Warsaw later this week, and what we might expect to see come out of that meeting at NATO headquarters in Brussels and his meeting with the Polish president in Warsaw. Expect to see even more solidarity than has been displayed so far. I think the most obvious thing will be more troop deployments around NATO's eastern flank, which have already increased dramatically since the start of this conflict. I would expect to see an increase in the provision of arms and ammunition in some way, and of course also of humanitarian aid. You know what you will see, I think, is NATO pretty unified, much more so than than was the case previously. That is the irony of this situation for Putin. He has, in large measure, achieved the opposite of what he was trying to achieve. And to say nothing of Germany at this point making a historic announcement that it, it's stepping up its defense spending. I hate to use the term German rearmament, those two words in the same sentence, but but with the big step up in its budget, that's what it appears to be. And that, I would have thought, that has been a Russian foreign policy goal to prevent and to interdict for the last 75 years. It looks as though Vladimir Putin has achieved that. Yes, that would be one of the things when I talk about him achieving the opposite of what he set out to do, that would be one of them. Yeah. I think the other would another one would be there's a distinct possibility, high, higher than previous possibility, that Sweden and Finland will join NATO. I'm sure NATO enlargement was not Putin's intent, but he may have <laughs> achieved that. So I think it's a disaster for him. I, I do think we should close by talking about the risk of escalation, because mm-hmm. I, that's something we haven't talked about. And it is the most dangerous possible outcome in front of us. You know, finding that, that bombing the cities in the way that he's currently doing is insufficient to break Ukrainian will. What will Putin do? And he, and he, you know, he could try to continue more of the same, but he could escalate. And that starts to get very worrying. When you say he could escalate, we've heard stories of the use of perhaps chemical weapons which were used in Syria or even tactical nuclear weapons. Of course, we, we've also talked about the pivotal historic nature of this conflict and use of chemical weapons on European soil and nuclear weapons would be a pivotal moment where those two weapons of mass destruction are introduced into Western Europe and that, that would be a pivotal moment for the worst, I think, as we as we're in the early decades of the 21st century wouldn't you agree well i certainly think that it will be focusing the mind of western and nato policymakers what how would we respond to these things and we need to have a very clear agreement and we may well want to say in advance what we would do if he did these things in order to try and prevent them happening we haven't got a great track record of that with red lines in syria so yes. I think there is a debate to be had about whether you declare in advance what your policy is, but certainly being clear on what we would do in the face of those escalations, I think is a really important thing. And I'm quite certain that will be the subject of conversations, President Biden and others in the coming days. Well, Chris, I'd like to thank you very much for joining us today and for sharing your insights on this pivotal event in the 21st century. Our guest, Sir Chris Deverell, is a retired senior British general and brings a wealth of 40 years of experience in the British Army. And as you can see from his comments today, also an enormous insight into what the Russians 
may or may not do as we move forward. So again, Chris, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Jim. It's been my pleasure. I would rather wish we'd not had this occasion to have a conversation, but I think it is important that people understand the ins and outs of what's happening. Well, Chris, we'll look forward to having you back. And once again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jim. And for my listeners, please take a moment to visit our website, www.thesanfranciscoexperiencepodcast, to subscribe. And you can listen to the 257 previous episodes by clicking on the episode button on the website and selecting any one of the 16 subject categories. Thank you for listening. And this has been the San Francisco Experience with your host, Jim Herlihy, coming to you from America's favorite city, San Francisco.